Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Well, I have not seen the movie. I do know from talking to some teens that the new film Pride and Prejudice Zombies has actually inspired kids to ask questions not just about the zombie apocalypse, but about Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen. The fact is that in our meteor-saturated culture, at a time when texting seems to be like long-form communications compared to Instagram, that kids are still interested in reading. How is this possible? My guest, longtime New Yorker staff writer and film critic David Denby, went back to high school to find out how students begin to appreciate reading and to see if screen-obsessed teens can really be inculcated in the pleasures of reading. David Denby is the author of the previous great books, an acclaimed account of returning to college and reading the Western classics. He's also written about films in American Sucker, Snark, and Do the Movies Have a Future? He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and his work has appeared in numerous other publications. It is my pleasure to welcome David Denby to this program to talk about his new work, Lit Up. One reporter, three schools, 24 books that can change lives. David Denby, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a delight to have you here. When you started this project, what were your preconceptions about it? What did you think you would find, particularly among teens and reading today? Well, I was wondering, as, as you posed the question also, whether kids were reading seriously at all. I mean, it's a common experience, you know, to go into a mall or a sandwich shop or a pizza parlor and see three, four kids sitting around a table all leaning forward, looking at their smartphones. You know, in the winter, they, they wear hoods, so they look like monks <laughs> or druids or something. And it's like the phones are communicating, but the kids aren't. Or if they are talking, um, there's, uh, you know, they're talking about something else, someone they're in touch with by, by their smartphones. And I, I, don't, I don't, I mean, I don't think uh, that they may be reading more words than ever before because they're online all the time or texting all the time. But uh, serious reading, it's a little hard to come by um, statistical information, but what there is 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 uh, pretty depressing and a commonplace observation of the kind that I'm giving you and the, and the testimony of your parents and teachers because I was always trying to keep my ears open and ask around this was like five years ago when I began this project so I thought uh, you know the bit how, how do you find out if, if 15 year olds can be turned on to literature anymore uh, and the, obviously the easiest way and maybe the best way to find out was to go back to school. Um, and I, as you mentioned, I did an earlier go back to school project. If I keep going, I'll be, I'll be sitting on the floor playing with blocks in the, in the next one, I guess. But I said, 15 years old. That's the that's the flashpoint. 15. Uh, you're you're determining things about yourself, your your sexuality, uh, what kind of work you might want to do, whether you want to go to college or go into the military. I mean, all of the it's, it begins to be, it's the onset of adulthood. So I thought that was the right time. So I wound up embedding, pardon the expression, in a public high school here in Manhattan. I was still writing uh, reviews for the New Yorker, so I, I couldn't go very far. I couldn't, you know, take off and settle myself in, uh, in Missouri or something like that. Uh, so, but I did get there every day for one class, one 10th grade section, 32 students, 
a dynamo teacher. I followed it from beginning to end, and the book is a narrative. So you, I read all the books with them, um, listen in all the discussions, try to take down whatever was interesting and relevant and, and sort of shape that into an ongoing narrative. So you could see certain students emerge from the mass uh, and, so, so to speak, become themselves, become readers and become more strong people. Uh, and some strikingly did and some did not. I mean, you can't, I can't make a, you know, a blanket statement that this was a complete victory. Um, I think, you know, lives are saved one at a time or, or a, few, a few at a time. Anyway, that, that was the basic scheme. And then I went to two other schools in succeeding years, up to an inner city school in New Haven, um, uh, with uh, largely poor African-American kids, um, white teacher, woman named Jessica Zelensky. And um, those kids weren't willing to read at all at the beginning of the year. I mean, they just couldn't see the point of English class. How is that going to help them? And she sort of bullied, cajoled, uh, and pulled them into reading and, and discussion. And, and so I, I, I got up there 14, 15 times. I got a sense of the arc of the year. And this one more, um, and that was a upper middle class white school, largely white school uh, in a suburb of New York called Mamaroneck, uh, north of the city. Um, they discovered their kids weren't doing a lot of the reading, the English department discovered, and the principal, particularly boys, weren't doing it. They read online uh, study aids. I don't know if you've ever looked at Spark Notes. Mm -hmm. uh, very competent, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> uh, accounts of what happens in Macbeth and The Great Gatsby and you know other things that are read in school. Um, and brazened their way through the tests and even boasted of it. So instead of scolding them, they tried something else. Very different. They didn't give up on their core readings. You have to read Macbeth, you have to read The Great Gatsby, the 1984, the, the other core readings for 10th grade English. But you also must have a book going at all time of your own choice. They, it doesn't matter. You can, you can read a sports biography, you can read a horror thing, you can read a, a graphic novel, but you must choose it. And, um, and not only that, when you finish one, you have to start another. You have to keep log in in your classroom. You have to take part in, in conversations with a teacher. You have to go on Goodreads and hold forth about what you're doing. So the idea behind this, Jeff, was it, there's actually been a lot of academic research on it. It's called high volume, high success reading. That if, if, the, if kids don't enjoy reading, you've got to create that link to pleasure or need, pleasure or need. That's what's right. That, those are the two things that are going to make people into lifetime readers. So, all right, we're going we're gonna to do pleasure here. Get, let them read what they want. And that's the first part of it. The second part of it is if they're reading the same kind of book over and over again, then you have a little conference. And you say, oh, I see you're drawn to horror fiction. Okay. Uh, here's this guy, Edgar Allan Poe, lived in the early part of the 19th century in America, and uh, was a fascinating guy, and sort of a mess, wrote these amazing stories. Uh, why don't you try that? 
I'd like you to try that and, and report back on it. Or here's this guy, Robert Louis Stevenson, the Englishman, uh, wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or Stephen King, for that matter. He's a wonderful novelist. Uh, Carrie is a quite brilliant. In other words, you get the point. <laughs> you push them, you take their interests, their predilections, whatever they are, and you push them upward towards literature. Those, those are the three things I reported on. Was there a point that you sensed, and, and these were, as you say, 15-year-olds, 10th graders primarily that you were looking at, but did you get a sense that there was a point for these kids when they really separated, when they became readers or non-readers somewhere before this point? Well, there, those who were who were lucky um, were were taken, uh, you know, barely barely out of the hospital into their parents' arms and, and placed between parents or held by a single parent or a guardian, and and read to when they were starting. I don't know, six weeks old. I mean, of course, they don't remember anything, but they remember there's some. I guess the word would be affective memory of being held and the connection of of reading and pictures and images and words to pleasure and to warmth and to family solidarity. That's the single best way um, to create readers. And, and if we can talk about this in a second, uh, for a second in class terms, that's what so many poor kids don't enjoy because so often they're in single parent families. They're large families. Uh, mom has to get tab- food on the table, uh, you know, for two, three, four children. And uh, it's not, there isn't time uh, and 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 parents may not be much readers uh, of readers themselves uh those early years uh you know is is when upper middle class kids learn a lot of words uh, and develop cognitive skills much uh, more powerfully than poor kids do and in other words by the time poor kids and I'm, I'm talking about race here i'm talking about across racial lines uh poor whites too i mean when they by the time they get to kindergarten at 6 they're seriously behind. So that's the single best way uh, of creating reading pleasure before 15. And then, I don't know, it depends. Parents can stick with kids and read to them and with them, read the same books they are, read back and forth. I know some families who read, you know, Harry Potter uh, together, mm-hmm. um, uh, mother and daughter, uh, that kind of thing. That, that's wonderful. Uh, or as your your kids' reading habits mature, you you know you you talk to them about what they're reading and why do they like this and oh well, there's this other book also. In other words, you've got to hang in there and devote if you're a parent and devote some serious time to it. And then the schools take over, and that just depends on you know how good a district you're in, how good your, your teachers are. There's no formula certainly that I can think of. But I thought 15, you could still reclaim kids. Um, who who weren't who were grudging readers or not habitual readers, um, and it's hard. It takes a lot of work, and and those teachers, you know, work with these with these kids through an entire year. One of the things you mentioned before was the difference between boys and girls, and we hear that over and over again about the gender yeah. difference as far as reading is concerned. Well. Um, the organization's great international organization of economic and cooperative development, which tracks kids all over the world and has respected uh, international tests on which we often seem like chumps, um, 
compared to other countries, although you have to modify that and say our upper middle class kids, prosperous kids do actually very well on those tests. Um, but anyway, th their complaint about boys is that internationally, they're spending too much time on games. In other words, they are not enough on reading, that they get addicted um, to games. And also, I, I think their parents um, are less likely to see reading fiction, literature, you know, great nonfiction as a way to possible employment. Um, they, don't, they don't see the connection with uh, employability later on, whereas in fact the ability to read, to understand complicated in, in instructions, to have some sense of who the people are around you, empathy, uh, all those terrific human skills that you um, get out of reading fiction and literature are enormously helpful in getting anywhere. I'm, I'm not saying you have to have them, um, or, and you can't be a success. Of course, I'm, I would never say that anything so categorical. But I, I, you know, I hear uh, industrial employers, corporate employers saying, uh, you know, we want someone who can stand up in a meeting and talk or who can lead a group. Uh, you know, can always hire, can always hire robots, you know. Uh, I mean, they want three-dimensional human beings in industrial and, and in, in corporate work. So in that, making those kind of human beings, I mean, all of life plays a part in it, but reading also plays a significant part. So this notion that, that boys in particular have to study the STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, in order to be employable, it's probably false. What I mean, certainly what employers want uh, is someone with a good liberal arts education, uh, including the sciences, but uh, you know everything else. And that's if we if we focus our education away from that in in high schools. I think we're making a terrible mistake. Yeah. Anyway, who wants to live like the Chinese? I mean, really. Well, look but at that the, place. The, the other part of it is, <laughs> even if you're talking about 15-year-olds, the science and technology that they'll be learning in the classroom today will be essentially outmoded by the time they get into the workforce in 10 years. Well, that's, that's a good point. Uh, that's a very interesting point. Whereas what they learn from reading Dostoevsky, you know, if they can manage Dostoevsky, uh, or, or anyone good, um, will never be outmoded. But by its nature, it can't be outmoded. It can't be measured, the value of it, um, but, but it can't be outmoded. Um, I think you know, what you say is very shrewd. Talk a little bit about the value of, of cross-media in getting kids to read, whether it's Pride and Prejudice Zombies getting them to read Jane Austen or, or seeing the movie of The Great Gatsby, getting them to read that. Talk a little bit about your sense of that, David. Um, I haven't, well, I haven't seen Pride and Prejudice Zombies. Um, I guess I get the joke, but um, uh, I, I sort of went, went off. Uh, I, I haven't been reviewing movies the last 15 right. months. <laughs> I certainly have seen enough zombie stuff. Uh, there have been very, there was um, a funny version of Scarlet Letter called the Easy A. Mm -hmm. uh, you remember that? Yes. I was a, about a decade ago. Um, and that certainly in introduces the themes. Um, there, um, there, there was a funny um, version of Emma. Um, Set in the California Valleys, 
so, I mean, there, there have been pop adaptations of Jane Austen um, and, and Hawthorne that have worked very well. And I suppose you could use that, those to ease kids into the literary pleasures of the reading Pride and Prejudice, which um, have to do with, with, you know, comedy of a very high sort. I mean, just abs- amazing wit and play and you know there's a courtship ritual going on a very high style courtship ritual so i mean what an english teacher has to do is try to get kids to enjoy that language the clash of temperaments um in 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 a way that you can do so much better in fiction than you can in film but i i I have no problem with using those films as a good starting point it's interesting the the added responsibility that is on teachers today in trying to deal with with these things that we're talking about essentially yeah i think uh, i i i just did a, a piece for the new yorker website called stop humiliating teachers and uh, it got a lot of response <coughs> i think um we um are demanding of teachers more than they can possibly deliver. They can't make up for all the ills of society. If kids are coming into school and they haven't been read to, they haven't been talked to all that much, they've been, you know, been plopped in front of television sets, uh, and their cognitive skills when they hit kindergarten and first grade and second grade aren't all that great, uh, that isn't teacher's fault. Um, that's those. That's parents and and the society and all the stresses and pressures um, on parents play into this. I'm not simply blaming, but we have we the whole model in recent years of dealing with public school teachers has been punitive. Um, no child left behind and uh, uh, President Bush's plan and race to the top. President Obama's plan um, attached employability of teachers to getting producing higher scores on standardized tests that has that created a whole new atmosphere in public education um that i don't think was helpful uh i mean the the reliability of these tests have been questioned many times by statistical uh experts it tends to measure demographics that is class more than uh, the teacher's innate ability. But it creates a whole atmosphere in school where teachers are sort of, have been changed by a kind of business way of thinking into competitive integers fighting each other, rather than cooperating and sharing um, with each other. In other words, I would, I would, of course there are a lot of terrible teachers, right? There are a lot of mediocre teachers, but this whole punitive mode seems to me wrong for the teaching uh, experience. I think you have to help people who aren't doing well. You have to give them a year to be retrained, put them through professional development. If they won't accept it, or if they don't get better, then they have to go, absolutely. Can't, you can't uh, have the system accommodating people who aren't good at teaching. They may be in the wrong profession. It takes a certain kind of temperament. That makes more sense to me. Uh, you know, I think we should pay them better if they're that important to us, and I think they should be regarded with higher status as distinguished members of the community. Private school teachers get that often, um, or they should be uh, considered like the military. They're putting their lives on the line, doing something extremely difficult a lot of the time. They, should, in other words, pay in status 
should be increased. That um, and, and the punitive model should be replaced by trying to help them. And if they won't accept help, then they have to go. That seems to me to make more sense. I mean, I guess the other part of that, the corollary part of that, is what's good when. A lot of these teachers that we might not consider be being good today might have been when you and I went to school, and particularly as it relates to teaching classics and teaching reading, but that doing it today is in an entirely different context that is within that framework that we talked about at the outset, where where the kids are on their phone or they're texting or that they live in a different world, and that even something as fundamental as getting them to read classics has to be done in, in a different context in a different way. And, and not, yeah. not every teacher is up to that. Uh, it's, it's rough. Um, and you have to reach the kids where they live emotionally and pull them out of that screen immersion and, and pull them into something more vital. Oh, I think, though, if, if you take an American teenager who might be jokey and self-deprecating and socially anxious, uh, you know, and all those things and, and scratch him a little bit or her a little bit, you'll discover uh, a kind of earnestly questioning person underneath because they do have a lot of issues about uh, what they're going to do with their lives and how, how do they fit in uh, or are they going to rebel against the social order that at times they find oppressive and literature is one of the ways of bringing those questions forward uh, and this guy that I followed that I wrote about all year uh, followed all through the year and then wrote it up as a kind of dramatic narrative Sean Leon his name is um, at, at, a, at the Beacon School in Manhattan, uh, a good public school, not the top rung, but a very solid um, ethnically mixed public school. Um, he chose books that focused on those questions. I mean, we read stories by Hawthorne and Faulkner. We read 1984 and Brave New World, so you could talk about the individual and society. We read Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, so you could talk about life as a kind of spiritual journey. Uh, we read the very daunting Dostoevsky notes from underground, a uh, short novel uh, that, that begins Dostoevsky's great period with a, with a rather... Um, uh, acidulous, angry, self-destructive uh, hero. I mean, the kids were fascinated by him, and they, they stepped up to a very difficult text. In other words, if you choose certain books, and if you um, give of yourself as a teacher, which may mean a certain amount of self-exposure. Now, in Sean Leon's case, he's uh, American-Irish background, and he's a lapsed Catholic. He didn't talk about his faith much, but you could see or his loss of faith, that um, he had certain uh, questions about his life and about his relation to his family, and occasionally he talked about it. And he pulled that out of the kids in relation to the books that we were reading. So in other words, he moved those particular texts which posed existential questions right into the center of their lives. Now, not everyone can do that. I mean, you, it takes a great deal of self-confidence. It takes a great deal of discipline. You have to insist on kindness. You cannot have kids coming at each other. That's absolutely forbidden. But And, and up in New Haven, uh, with the white teacher, black kids, she also related what they were reading to elements in their own lives. And they talked about their own lives and then would go back to the text. So in other words, it was a kind of back and forth. So, that, so to answer your question, how do you do it in this media environment, you have to go vitally toward what matters 
uh, in those kids' lives and, and, and make literature part of that uh, and not give in to a kind of superficial the sort of media cynicism. And the other part of that relative to the talk in the classroom is the interactive nature of it. That really does seem to be, as you write about this, a critical part, the ability of the kids and teacher and the kids among themselves to talk about this material and to interact about it. Yeah, this is practically a revolution in their lives. I mean, you're absolutely right. Insist on conversation. I mean, uh, you know, Sherry Turkle just wrote a book called Reclaiming Conversation. uh, And this is a sociologist and psychologist at MIT. uh, And she's obsessed with the way kids are not confronting one another, that they're using uh, smartphones to mediate everything, Uh, friendships, romantic relationships, uh, not just, you know, I'll meet you later at the pizza parlor, but uh, the most essential things that they have, a lot of them have found it easier and more convenient uh, not to face each other. Uh, And uh, in her opinion, this creates a kind of uh, dreadful weakness in their lives that they don't develop social confidence. They don't develop inwardness. They're terrified of being alone for a second. Like you're going to miss something. Mostly what they're going to miss is a kind of looping conversations like going back and forth, you know, about some joke or some kid or something. Uh, It's become, all of that's become a substitute for face-to-face conversation, which can can be emotional and confrontational, but, uh, you know, hey, you want to live as an adult, better get used to it. Um, You want to work in a challenging work environment, you want to raise a family, better get used to it. So she finds that very alarming. All right, so in in these classrooms, um, conversation was absolutely at the center. These were not lectures. These were conversations in which the teachers would provoke conversations, play students off against each other, make uh, at Beacon, make them uh, stand up, uh, though they were notified in advance, and, and make a presentation about some aspect of 1984 or Siddhartha or Brave New World, whatever, or, and the presentation and ask questions of students themselves. It's hard. I don't know that I would be, have been able to do that when I was 15. I was very shy. Uh, I became less so as I got older. But anyway, uh, you're absolutely right. Conversation and getting them to talk to one another and find each other interesting directly, and, that is the heart of this. Right, and that really does seem to be the heart of it. There seems to be that this absolute nexus between the ability to get the kids to connect with each other and get them to connect with literature. Yes, and and the, the more they connect with each other, the more excited they, they wind up being uh, about coming to class and, and talking about those books. And one thing that uh, Mr. Leon did was, uh, I think maybe I mentioned before, was to have them act out sections, uh, and read, read aloud mm-hmm. um, in some cases, uh, or literally turn things into, well, we wound up reading, uh, of all things, uh, Beckett's Waiting for Godot, Godot very uh, daunting uh, avant-garde play of the 20th century, which sort of questions our very existence itself. What are we doing in, uh, on this earth? You know, And, uh, and it's, it's very hard to read uh, Beckett on the page, Beckett's dramatic work. So, but they play magnificently because they're funny in a kind of uh, dark way. And he so but we read... We acted out virtually the entire play, and that was the way they got into it. The the acting out came first, and then the conversations about the play came after. 
uh, up at up in New Haven, uh, when it was clear in the beginning of the year that the kids simply weren't doing the reading, Miss um, Zelensky uh, started reading aloud herself, and this was To Kill a Mockingbird, and uh, and then kids took turns reading. I mean, and they're. Uh, they get bolder and bolder as readers once they get this little, you know, it's challenging to read in public. Um, so, but they, and then she would stop and talk about what does this passage mean or how does this relate to your life? Or this is the way people uh, got around town in 1930 in Maycomb, Georgia. And is it Georgia, Alabama? I'm going blank for a second. And, and to kill a mockingbird. You know, how is it different now? What, what were they eating? What do you eat now? In other words, she would get them to read and then, go into questions about the text and then bring it back to their lives. David Denby, his book is lit up. One reporter, three schools, 24 books that can change lives. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, this is great. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Your questions were terrific. Um, I, hope, I hope people enjoy the book. Thank you.